Hello, and welcome to another HeartPod, cardiology podcast for trainees. My name is Dr. Dominic Pimenta, and today we will be joined by Dr. George Abraham, who will be talking to us about the new guidelines for N-STEMI. My name is George Abraham. And today we're going to be talking about the ESC guidelines for ACS and NSTEMI. What I'd like to cover uh, over the next sort of 20 minutes is looking at the uh, definition of MI, the universal definition of MI, in terms of the pathological presentation, the clinical presentation, what we have to do as registrars when we see these patients uh, in A&E or when they present to our heart attack centre. We'll look at the use of high sensitivity troponin and how this has changed our diagnostic pathway and our diagnostic methods. We'll also think about risk stratification, what techniques uh, we can use to, to risk stratify these patients into low risk, intermediate risk or high risk. And finally, for the end of today, um, we'll look at the uh, process of cardiac monitoring and also the bleeding risk, what scores are available for us to quantify bleeding risk. In future sessions, we'll look a bit more closely at the pharmacological management and also the options for revascularization and the timing and strategy that we might employ. Okay, so first of all, I'd like us just to pause and uh, let's just consider what do we mean when we talk about an acute myocardial infarction. So what it is, is cardiomyocyte necrosis. And we describe this, that's a pathological diagnosis, but we talk about it in a clinical setting that's consistent with myocardial ischemia. And when we try and diagnose these patients, sometimes it's, it's pretty hard. What we can do is we detect a cardiac biomarker, especially high sensitivity troponin, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then one out of five of the following. So symptoms of ischemia, that might be typical chest pain. Number two, ECG changes, such as ST or T uh, changes on the ECG with left bundle branch block or right bundle branch block. Number three, development of pathological Q waves. Number four, there might be imaging evidence, such as regional wall motion abnormalities when we do that initial bedside echocardiogram. And number five, finally, when we take the patients for a diagnostic angiogram, we see evidence of intracoronary thrombus, and that gives us the diagnosis. So if we've got an elevation of a cardiac biomarker with one out of five of those things that we discussed, we're looking to make the diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction. What's important to note is that a raise in the troponin is not sufficient on its own. And this causes great anxiety to emergency physicians, to acute medics and to cardiologists alike. It's also worth just pondering for a second the subclassification of MI. What we mean when we talk about acute MI in the general setting is the type 1 MI. That's what we're mainly concerned with. And the pathological correlate here is plaque rupture in the setting of advanced atherosclerotic disease. In addition to plaque rupture, there's also ulceration of an atherosclerotic plaque, fissure, erosion and dissection. The result of all these processes is that there is an intraluminal thrombosis which occludes the coronary artery that decreases myocardial blood flow or that thrombus embolizes to a distal area and causes subsequent myocardial necrosis. What we have to remember is in about 5-20% to 20 of cases when we come to doing an angiogram we find that actually there's no obstructive coronary lesion 
um, and this is a, a de novo thrombosis. Okay, so for completeness, what are the other types of MI? There's five types. So type two is a situation that we do encounter in clinical practice quite a lot, and perhaps we, we tend to over-diagnose or, or overstate. And I think there's, there's certainly a grey area here. But type 2 MI encompasses all the conditions other than coronary plaque instability. And uh, possible mechanisms might include coronary spasm, endothelial dysfunction, context of maybe a vasculitis, a severe tachyarrhythmia or a bradyarrhythmia, severe anemia, hypertension in the context of perhaps sepsis, or toxins. Type 3 MI is where we don't have a chance to make the diagnosis because the patient has, has died, um, so sudden cardiac death. Type 4 MI is the MI in the context of PCI, and type 5 is similarly um, in the context of bypass grafting. So traditionally there are three conditions that encompass ACS. And it's worth just recapping, although this is something that we're all going to be very familiar with. So one is the ST elevation MI. Of course, um, there are diagnostic criteria based on the amount of ST elevation. N-STEMI or non-ST elevation MI encompasses all those patients that don't have persisting ST segment elevation. And we're going to talk in detail about how we subclassify those. There's also a separate entity of patients with unstable angina, that is patients with typical chest pain that comes on at rest, but not associated with any ECG abnormalities or a detectable rise in biomarkers. Now, the diagnosis of unstable angina is becoming much less diagnosed because of the presence of high sensitivity troponin. We're able to detect much lower levels of troponin, so the same troponin rise that we're detecting in NSTEMI, but we're detecting it at a much earlier and much lower level. So overall, unstable angina diagnosis have decreased. Let's talk now about how we might risk stratify emergency patients. Assessment is via the troponin, which we can do at presentation and also at a one-hour time limit or a three-hour time limit. And we look at the presence of risk factors. The risk factors include if the patient's already had previous PCI or known coronary artery disease, if they've got lots of cardiovascular risk factors, so over three of diabetes, they're a current smoker, they've got hypertension or a family history of coronary artery disease, dyslipidemia. If they present in pulmonary edema, their mortality risk is going to be higher. Also, if they have a persisting tachycardia or hypotension, so physiological parameters. Also, if their initial presentation, we do a bedside echocardiogram and he's got an LV function of less than 40%, that's associated with a poorer prognosis and puts the patient into a higher risk category. So the next part, we'll look at the history, examination, and then what investigations we need to do as registrars in the acute setting. So first of all, the history, typical chest pain. It's worth just pondering for a second is the term we all use. What we mean is retrosternal pressure or heaviness that radiates to the left arm or to the neck or the jaw. Typically, it's intermittent. It lasts several minutes or it's persistent. Additionally, the patient's going to tell you that they're sweating they're nauseous, they might be vomiting. They may also complain of some abdominal pain, maybe extremely short of breath, or they may present with syncope, although these would be less typical, of course. Now, one of the most sensitive features to ask about in history is whether this pain is exacerbated by physical exertion. And then consider whether the patient um, is presenting de novo 
or whether this is a crescendo angina presentation, so things are getting progressively worse over a period of time. What's also useful and what's often on our sort of audit forms is the Canadian Cardiovascular Society grading or CCS grading of angina. It was developed in the early 70s based on multiple registries and observational studies. It's frequently applied and cited, especially for GPs when they assess fitness to travel and in occupational health. So zero on the CCS scale is someone who's completely asymptomatic. One on the CCS scale is angina only with strenuous activity. So for example, if the patient's rushing up several flights of stairs. Number two on the CCS scale, they've got angina with what we classify as moderate exertion. So they might be walking uphill at a regular pace or walking on the flat but under slightly unusual circumstances. So after a heavy meal or outside in the cold air or during a period of emotional stress. Class three is angina in routine circumstances, so climbing one flight of stairs at a normal pace and under normal conditions. And class four is angina at rest. Now clearly in the emergency situation, when we're assessing these patients for acute coronary syndrome, we're most interested in class three and class four, and we would consider the diagnosis of NSTEMI in these patients. What's the usefulness of examination? Sometimes we don't have much time we feel that there's a, a great time pressure to assess whether these patients need to go to the lab immediately and we don't always necessarily do a, a comprehensive examination. But we should at least do a focused one um, that takes less than a minute and the main outcome, the main aim that we have is to elucidate uh, whether there's any differential diagnoses. And of course not all chest pain or not all high troponin is related to acute coronary syndromes. We should do a respiratory examination to look for signs of infection, pneumonia, pneumothorax. We could look for the pericardial rub of pericarditis. And we could also assess uh, more generally any other conditions that may masquerade as, a, as an ACS. Okay, the next session, uh, we're going to talk about cardiac troponin. Why is it important? How is it different now compared to when we were at medical school, we were just starting out? So the first generation troponins used to have a upper limit of detection of 0.5 micrograms per litre. And what that meant was patients were coming in with chest pain, they'd get admitted to the medical assessment unit, they'd have an initial troponin and they'd stay overnight and have a troponin result the next day. That's because the limit of detection was relatively high. So you had to have an ongoing troponin leak to actually um, manifest on the um, assay that we did. This meant that a lot of bed space was taken up, a lot of space in A&E and in the acute medical wards were taken up by patients simply waiting for a blood test. Now over the last five years there have been several assays which are much more high sensitivity. There are two that are principally in clinical use and endorsed by NICE. One is the Elisys TROP-T high sensitivity assay that's made by the company Roche. The second is the Architect STAT high sensitivity TROP, which is made by the company Abbott. Now these are able to detect levels of troponin up to 0.05 micrograms per litre, or 5 nanograms per litre. So we can see that by an order of a thousand, these are much more sensitive and are able to pick up what would be the same troponin leak, but at a much earlier stage. And this means that we can actually safely send patients home even one hour after uh, the initial blood test. 
provided certain caveats are met, which we'll which we'll talk about. Now the limit of detection um, and the sort of normal range of troponin causes a great deal of anxiety and a great deal of confusion. I think the simplest way of thinking about this is each assay has a different normal range and the normal range is calculated based on experimental studies where they've looked at a healthy reference population and they've said that the level of troponin measurable in a healthy normal population will follow a normal distribution. What we accept as the upper limit of the normal range is the 99th centile. So that means there is going to be 1% of your healthy reference population which will have a detectable troponin above that of the um, normal range. Now it's worth just mentioning whenever we, whenever you start at a new hospital it's worth just familiarizing yourself with which troponin assay your hospital is using and which uh, reference levels you're using because they are different um, depending on which um, test you're using. Now the ones we use in our hospital, the Royal Free Hospital, is the uh, LSIS assay by, made by Roche and the upper limit of normal is 5 nanograms per litre. Now what does that actually mean? That's the something termed the limit of blank. Now the limit of blank is essentially analytical noise. That's how much troponin might be detected even if you put a blank sample in your analyzer machine. So anything up to five technically you could get with a blank sample. So if you've got a sample that then shows um, a troponin level of less than five you can be pretty sure that that's nothing to do with an MI or a genuine troponin leak. The limit of detection corresponds to the upper limit of the normal range. Those are interchangeable terms. So for our assay in our hospital, a troponin level of anything up to 11, you could get with 99% of your healthy reference population. Therefore, if you've got a level of less than 11, you can pretty much say that this isn't due to a troponin leak caused by acute myocardial infarction. All right, so what, is the, what are the implications of that then? So high sensitivity TROP, it detects a lower level of TROP, therefore it's got a higher negative predictive value for acute myocardial infarction. It reduces the troponin blind interval, which we mentioned earlier. So there's potential for earlier discharge, freeing up bed space, freeing up our time. Now the overall result when we've looked at the use of high sensitivity TROP compared to more historic assays was that there's a 4% absolute and a 20% relative increase in the detection of type 1 MI. This has come at a slight cost in um, specificity, meaning that we're more likely to diagnose other conditions um, which are associated with a high TROP. Now, we mentioned right at the start that troponin is only one aspect in the diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome. So we must use all our clinical judgment and all the available evidence to definitively make the diagnosis. What's mentioned in the ESC guidelines in particular are that the troponin level correlates positively with the mortality of the patient. So our elevation over five times the upper reference limit is more strongly associated with acute type 1 MI. And if you've got an elevation over five times the upper reference limit of your assay in your hospital, that's got a 90% positive predictive value for acute type 1 MI. And rising troponins, this concept that if you repeat the troponin in an hour or three hours and it goes up, that's more associated with the likelihood of ongoing cardiomyocyte damage. So that's something that we all need to be aware of and familiarize yourself with the 
ACS pathways in your local hospital. I'll go through the pathway that we use um, and they are broadly similar in every hospital. Now just as a quick aside, there are some other biomarkers that we use in cardio cardiology that we should be aware of as registrars. One is CKMB. Now we rarely use this in routine clinical practice. It's sometimes useful um, for measurement of someone with ongoing pain and um, the assessment of reinfarction. Copeptin is something that might become more widely used but isn't recommended in the current guidelines. Um, that's the C-terminal of vasopressin pro-hormone. Also in heart failure and also um, in ongoing monitoring of patients with heart failure or shock, we do sometimes use BNP and NT-pro-BNP, which can provide prognostic information. Okay, so let's talk about the pathway now. I think we can get very bogged down in the precise numbers and absolute numbers and how we uh, would classify these patients in a very rigid format. But I think one thing that we should all bear in mind, even if we can't remember the precise numbers, and remember the numbers are going to be different wherever you work. Essentially, there's a group of patients who are going to be low risk, very unlikely to be ACS. They might have atypical features. They've got an undetectable troponin level and they're pain free. Those patients we can safely discharge early and we might think about appropriate follow-up, say, for example, non-invasive stress testing. Those are your low-risk patients. Then there's an intermediate group who've got certain findings that are consistent with ACS. They've got a troponin level that's above the upper limit of normal, up to an intermediate range, up to that five times the upper limit, uh, which we mentioned earlier. And those are in an intermediate group. And for those patients, what we really need to do is get a trend in the troponin. So we need to repeat the troponin after an hour and see if there's been a change. And if there has, what we then do is apply some risk stratification models, such as the GRACE score, which we'll talk about. And then we um, would class those patients into either an intermediate risk of ACS or a high risk of ACS. Then that third group on initial presentations, those patients that have got a typical history, they've got ECG changes, and they've got a high level of troponin, that is five times the upper reference limit of normal. And those patients are automatically classified as high risk. Now in between the low risk and intermediate risk are those patients who've got a borderline troponin or a troponin that's within the normal range um, but isn't uh, rising or has is ri uh, risen a small amount um, that's what I'd say is a, is a grey area. And for those patients, we need to be very attuned to identifying alternative diagnoses. We need to think about, is there anything else that could be causing this troponin? Are we getting distracted by the ACS issue? Okay, so let's uh, just to labour the point, uh, let's, uh, let's go through a couple of uh, possible examples then. So someone's come in, they've got atypical symptoms, they've got no risk factors for coronary artery disease. The pain came on over three hours ago, they're now pain-free. The high sensitivity troponin is less than five. Okay, so it's undetectable. We mentioned that if it's less than five, you could potentially even get that with just a blank sample in your analytical machine. So those patients, we don't even need to do a repeat troponin. We can actually send them home, provided um, the pain onset was over three hours ago. It's not validated for use in someone who's presenting very early. So you might need to keep them in hospital. Uh, for a couple of hours to get to that three-hour limit and repeat the test if that's the situation. Those patients, we might consider an outpatient CT coronary angiogram assessment in something like the Rapid Access Chest Pain Clinic, which is present in most hospitals. The second situation, so we've got someone who's come in, 
uh, with a typical history of cardiac pain but is now pain free. Their initial troponin is 6, so it's over 5 but less than 11. What do we do for those patients? Do we need to keep them in now that they're pain free? Let's repeat the troponin in one hour and what we do is we assess whether there's a change. If there's a change um, of less than 3 then we can potentially um, consider early discharge and again we probably need to follow this patient up if we think there's a high chance they've got coronary artery disease. If that repeat troponin has come back and it's going up and it's over 5 more than it was before, so now it's 11 whereas it was 6, what we need to then do is assess the ischemic score, uh, ischemic risk stratification by means of the GRACE score and we would place these patients into an intermediate group or a high risk group. The third group, uh, or the third patient I'd like us to consider is that patient with typical chest pain. They've got several risk factors. They might have prior cardiac disease, prior coronary artery disease with previous uh, bypass grafting or PCI. They've got a troponin that's over 100. They are automatically high risk. Now, a repeat troponin after one hour can give us an idea of the trend. And as we mentioned before, um, will correlate with the risk stratification and mortality of that patient. So it's still useful for us to do. Now these assays are validated if the pain onset is over three hours ago and in those settings the sensitivity of the troponin is close to 100%. Now this technique is called the naught hour one hour rule out algorithm and there's a broadly similar naught hour three hour algorithm and uh, you need to just be aware of which algorithm your hospital is using. Okay, very quickly we'll go through what options we have for further assessment in terms of imaging. So certainly echocardiography is the, is the most valuable diagnostic tool at the bedside and we must all as, as uh, first or second year registrars get very familiar and very comfortable doing a bedside echocardiogram to evaluate um, not just differential diagnoses, so looking at the proximal aorta, valvular dysfunction, so severe aortic stenosis can present like an ACS, but also an assessment of the left ventricle. Get familiar with the, with the regions and the coronary artery territories, the 16 or 17 segment uh, model of the left ventricle. And this can give us a lot of information about whether this is truly an ACS, and if so, uh, where we should look for the lesion when we come to doing diagnostic angiography. Other options are stress echocardiography, so that's an echocardiogram at rest or with dibutamine or exercise stress, and we can also administer contrast to delineate the LV very clearly. And this can be a, a good rule out test for those low risk patients. CMR is used in the same circumstances and is perhaps more useful if we're pondering um, the presence of a cardiomyopathy or other um, unusual diagnosis. But of course, if we use CMR with perfusion, we can also identify perfusion defects, regional wall motion abnormalities, areas of scar as well. CT angiography is traditionally used for those low to intermediate pretest probability, but it's not validated, remember, if a patient has known prior coronary artery disease. They've got atrial fibrillation, in which case it's very difficult to gate the images and get good diagnostic um, quality and if they've got a high calcium score, so if, if they're known to have a previous CT with calcium scoring, um, then this leads to a lot of artifact and less sensitivity of the test. Okay, so let's finish for today just talking about the GRACE score, because this is very important. It's mentioned in all the guidelines. It's 
to mention all the risk stratification tools and in our ACS algorithms that we'll find in our hospital. So what is the GRACE score? It's basically registry data. There's uh, an initial score that was um, made in Canada and then following that after a longer follow-up period of the same registry something called the GRACE 2.0 risk calculation and we can um, access this freely on the on the website. Now the arbitrary cutoff score, say when you put all the variables into that risk score you get a number and you also get an estimate of six month mortality and also at one year and three years. Now the arbitrary cutoff score that they give you is, is 140. So anything less than 140 puts the patient into an intermediate or low risk. Anything over 140 is high risk. Now the variables, and we should just remember these variables, the variables that we must input are increasing age, the systolic blood pressure presentation, the pulse, the creatinine, the KILIP class of heart failure. Just to recap, the KILIP class is a, is a four-grade class, so one, no clinical signs of heart failure, grade two, they've got basal crackles, they've got um, a third heart sound or a raised JVP. Class three in the KILIP class is uh, overt pulmonary edema, and class four is there's very sick patients with cardiogenic shock. Other markers that we use in the GRACE score are biomarkers, so elevated high sensitivity troponin and ST deviation. Now, an alternative to the GRACE score, which is maybe slightly easier to use, uh, but has lower discriminative accuracy and was mainly validated prior to the advent of percutaneous coronary intervention, is the TIMI risk score. So that's essentially any patient who's over 65 with over three risk factors, coronary artery disease, if they've got known coronary artery disease, if they've used aspirin in the last seven days, if they've had over two episodes of severe angina within the last 24 hours, if they've got ST segment deviation or positive biomarkers, they're classified as high risk if they've got any of those. But overall, compared to the GRACE score, it's got lower discriminative accuracy. All right, well, we'll finish uh, there today. Okay, Join us next time where we'll talk about um, how we actually apply this um, into the treatment of patients. Uh, we'll specifically talk about antiplatelets, anticoagulation, we'll talk about revascularization strategies, and we'll talk about how we admit these patients to hospital and how we should be monitoring them. Many thanks to Dr. George Abraham's first part summary of the ACS guidelines. We'll see you again in part two, and thank you for listening to another HeartPod cardiology podcast for trainees.